are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. My name is David Guzik, and on Thursday afternoons, I do a YouTube Live here from uh, wherever I am. And if you can tell from both the camera and the background, I'm not where I normally am on a Thursday afternoon. Normally, I'm at my home on the West Coast, but right now I'm on the East Coast. Matter of fact, I'm in New York City. And I said last week there'd be kind of a special announcement kind of thing or thing that was unique about. Well, again, it's because I'm traveling again. And here I am on the East Coast of the United States. My wife, Ingalil, and I have been having a lovely, lovely time here in New York City. Uh, We've had a few days of sunny, beautiful weather. Right now, I look out and the sky's kind of dark and dreary and a little bit of foggy and a little bit of moisture in the air. But nevertheless, uh, that hasn't stopped us from having a really wonderful time even today. So I'm on now live. It's 12 o'clock noon on the West Coast. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon here on the East Coast. I don't know what time it is in whatever time zone you happen to be. Uh, One of the things we like about our program is we start it at 12 noon Pacific time in the United States so that we can be accessible to a little more of an international audience. I think that if we did it later in the day, we might pull in more of an audience from the United States. And that's awesome. Look, of course, I live here in America and I'm an American. I have a great appreciation for this country. But at the same time, I know that God has a great love for people all around the world. Maybe I'm a little bit silly about this in this regard, is I know that more people watch this program in its recorded version, and of course they can see it whatever time they would like to see it, than it is people who actually see it in its live version. Uh, Nevertheless, I have to say I really enjoy our live international listeners. So you can do us a great big favor if you are Uh, viewing this right now live, we love to know where you're from. Type something in the comments, in the response, whatever it is, the side chat, uh, because we do broadcast on several different platforms on uh, YouTube Live, on Facebook Live, and on TWR 360 Live. Uh, Let us know where you're viewing from, whether it's here in the United States, whether it's internationally. We just love knowing where our viewers come from, especially with our live audience. Our habit here on our Thursday afternoon Q&A is to start with a lead question. It could come in over social media. It could be left over from a previous week. It could be uh, from an email. I think this particular question came in on an email. And uh, we like to start off with a question that we think uh, will be helpful for a lot of our viewers with the lead question. So here we go. Here's the lead question for today. It comes from Susan. And Susan asks this question. I need help with understanding what it means to love God. From your commentary on Mark 12, I gather it is not a warm, fuzzy feeling, but a decision. However, I still do not understand. Could you explain this further for me, please? Well, Susan, thank you for your question. And I think you're asking a wonderful question. It's a very practical question for us, as a matter of fact. How can we love God? And the way I'm phrasing it in our lead question, how can we love God more? I mean, after all, if you are a believer, you should have a concern for not only loving God, 
but for loving God more. Let me rephrase that. No matter who you are. I speak to anybody in our viewing audience. Maybe you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you haven't trusted what God's word reveals about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do for us, especially what he did for us at the cross and the empty tomb. That work of Jesus in his death and resurrection in particular, I mean, because it's everything about the person and work of Jesus that is important to us, but in particular what he did in his death and resurrection If you have not yet put your faith in that, if you not yet respond to the gospel by a personal relationship of love and trust in Jesus Christ, it's still important for you to love God. You need to turn. You you need to repent. That is, change your way from your past of not loving and honoring God. And you need to, uh, of course, God in you gives the ability and the capability to do this. But he doesn't do it apart from the decision of the will. He does it with the decision of you. You need to decide, I need to love God. You see, this is the great commandment. Jesus said there's two great commandments. One is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commander, which is a commandment which is like it, is to love our neighbor as ourself. But we're commanded to love God. I would say, listen, even if you're an atheist, I say, forget about your atheism and you need to love God. God commands you to love him. Now, just the fact that God commands us to love him might sound strange to some of us. And I understand that because we would think it sounds very strange if a uh, husband would command a wife to love him. We feel a little less uncomfortable with the idea of a parent commanding the love of the child, but that doesn't sit exactly right for us. How can God command us to love him? Well, one of the reasons is, it's just something that Susan touched on in her question. Love in a modern age is largely redefined to be something purely on the basis of feeling. And we need to understand that there is very much an act of the will involved in true love. It's volitional. It has to do with our will. And so the fact that we're commanded to love God gives demonstration to the fact that we can choose to love him. Love is commanded. Now, Jesus commanded love to God while quoting the Hebrew scriptures. And he said that this was the first and the greatest commandment and that we should love God with our complete being. Again, I want to say that this is true for every single person in this world. You're commanded to love God. And if you deny his existence or if you acknowledge his existence but refuse to even attempt to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then you're not operating in God's will. Matter of fact, The Apostle Paul later wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. He wrote this, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. You see what Paul said? If we will not love Jesus Christ, who again perfectly represents who God is and all God is, he is God in the flesh. So to love Jesus is to love God. Paul wrote, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. So again, this love, again, is a love of choice, and it's a love that's constantly demonstrated. So that's the first principle I want to establish for you, that love 
is commanded to us. The second principle I want to establish to you is that love is responsive. Friends, this is so important for us to understand. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 puts it like this. We love him because he first loved us. Don't ever lose sight of the truth of that very important principle. We love him because he first loved us. This is really the cause of our loving God, not trying to work up a love in ourselves, but in receiving God's love and then allowing our love to be the natural, logical response to the God who loves us so much. Friends, this is such an important principle. Don't think that you have to earn God's love to you by the way that you love him, as if God's responsibility was to respond to your love. No, our love for God is responsive to him. Friends, I've told you that you're commanded to love God. Well, let me tell you one of the reasons why you're commanded to love God is because he loved you first. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The breadth of God's love for a sinful world means that God loved you first. And that's why you should love him. Matter of fact, that's the only reason why you can love him, because he loved you first. No, true love is commanded. True love is responsive. But let me bring up one other point. Love to God needs attention. In other words, we're not going to truly love God uh, by accident. There needs to be an element of intentionality about it. Remember what's recorded for us in Jude chapter 1, verse 21, where Jude wrote this. Keep yourselves in the love of God looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. In other words, there's a sense in which we keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, we don't do this in a sense that's self-focused and, you know, God's trying to escape us and, and trying to take his love away from us, but we keep ourselves. It's not like that at all. But, but what it's just trying to say is that uh, we need to have the mentality, God's love is bestowed upon me. I want to keep myself in his love. Now, practically speaking, what are some of the things that we can do to love God more? Let's say this, and I'm not even going to say that this is true, but just for the sake of argument, hypothetically, let's say that you can't make yourself love something or someone. Now, again, I think that's a debatable proposition, but just for the sake of let's say that you can't, but even if you can't make yourself love someone or something, you can cultivate love towards someone or something. It's certainly possible. This is true in human relationships. It's also true in our relationship with God. How do we do this? How do we cultivate a deeper love relationship, if we want to use that phrase, with God? Well, let, let me remind you, first of all, first, we consciously receive God's love for us. Friends, I can't uh, understate the importance of this. 
remember what the scriptures say. We love him because he first loved us. That's why we love him. Because he first loved us. Again, that's 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. So our love to God must always begin with a conscious acceptance, reception of his love towards us. So first, consciously receive God's love to you. It can be that simple. It's just saying, oh, Lord, I receive your love. Lord, your word says that you love me. And I don't know if I feel loved or not right now by God in heaven, but your word says that you love me. And so I'm going to receive that love. Okay. Consciously receive the love of God to you. Secondly, do the things towards God that you would do towards anyone that you loved. In other words, act towards God in a loving manner. You say, well, how do you do? How do you act in a loving manner towards God? Listen, friends, this isn't as mysterious as sometimes we would like to make it. I guess what I'm trying to say is simply this. There are things that we do, humanly speaking, on, on, a, on a vertical level, uh, horizontal level, excuse me, I got my vertical, my horizontal mixed up just for, there are things that we do on a horizontal level, uh, person to person, when we want to demonstrate our love to somebody else or that we actually are in love with them. And what are some of those things that we do? Well, first of all, give God your time Set him before you constantly. Friends, if you love somebody, you're going to give them your time. There's not a human being on this earth that I spend more time with other than my wife. Why? Because I love her. Ingalil is wonderful. And it's a wonderful thing for us to be able to spend time together. Give God your time. Set him before you constantly and you'll grow in your love towards him. Give God your attention your care. I mean, if you care towards God, you, you give attention to me. For example, you give God your attention by carefully reading his word and thinking about those words. Give God your attention and care. Give God a truly listening ear. And I'm not talking about a uh, metaphysical or supernatural experience. I believe that such things can happen, but I think it's not really our place as believers to seek after those things. We seek after what God has revealed to us in his word. Listen to what God tells you in his word. This is what you do for somebody that you love. Give God your honor and obedience. Honor him. Look, if a man loves a woman, he's going to look for a way to honor her. He's going to look for a way to please her. So give God your honor and your obedience. Give God your appreciation. Value him for all the good that he's done for you and be thankful for that good. Look, when you love somebody, it's very easy to feel grateful to them. And you express that gratitude in many ways. If you want to cultivate a deeper love for God, then look for ways to say thank you to God. Look for ways to express your appreciation to him. Give God your dependence and trust. Let him care for you. You know, sometimes this is one of the most loving things that we can do for other people. We allow them to care for us. Sometimes we're so proud, 
so self-sufficient that we don't any we don't want to receive anything from anybody. But you know, when you love somebody, you will receive from them. So give God your dependence and trust. Let him care for you. And finally, give God your praise. Speak highly of God before other people. That's what you do for people you love, isn't it? If you love your husband or wife, if you love a professional athlete, so to speak, you love at least their image of them in an athletic sense. If you love an actor or actress, you know, you admire them, you're going to speak highly of them in front of other people. If you love God, you'll do the same thing. So, friends, do you see what I'm saying? These are simple things that we can do, things that we do for others on a horizontal, so to speak, level that we can carry over into our vertical relationship with God and simply do these things and grow in our love relationship with God. Let let me add a couple final thoughts here. Number one, and again, uh, just to remind you, if you've come in sort of late to us, our lead question today comes from Susan. And Susan asks that she needs help in understanding what it means to love God. And I've given some very practical pointers on what I think it means, how we can very practically express that we love God. Okay, now let me continue on to this and say that one more characteristic of love is that when we truly love somebody, we don't wish to change them. Look, the more you want to change another person, it more shows that there's not something completely... Now, I understand we can genuinely love somebody and still try to change them, but, but there's something imperfect in that love. Wouldn't we agree? Stop trying to change God. Stop trying to change him into what you want him to be. What we want God to be is irrelevant. Who he is and how he's revealed himself to us in the scriptures. That's what matters. That's what's relevant. So that's all about Susan's question. How can I love God more? And I hope I've given you some very practical and pointed uh, ideas on how we can grow in our love towards God. But I'll emphasize this once more. It all begins with receiving the love that he gives towards us. We love him because he has first loved us. Well, folks, that's it for our lead question today. And I just want to welcome those who have joined us. Here I am today. I'm speaking to you actually from New York City. I am not in my home on the West Coast of the United States. So I don't know where you're viewing from. I know we get viewers from all around the world. We get viewers from Africa. We get viewers from Europe. We get viewers from uh, parts of Asia. We get viewers from all over the United States and Canada, uh, some from Mexico and other Latin American countries. We welcome our global international audience and so, so pleased that you could join us today. All right. Now, um, on to the questions submitted to you, uh, by you, I should say. And if you are unfamiliar with how we do this, we ask you to submit the questions on the live chat, on the comments, whatever vehicle you have on your particular platform, because we're sending this out over three different platforms right now. We're sending it out over our YouTube live platform, our Facebook live platform, and our TWR360 platform as well. And we're grateful for every one of you viewers and simply want to say that leave a 
question in the comments or in the side chat. Um, our moderator, Devin, takes that question and he kind of prioritizes them and sends them on to me. And I, I just want to give you a little bit of a hint on how it works. I, I'm never saying to Devin, hey, don't give me the hard questions. Look, it doesn't matter. He can give me questions easy, hard. It just doesn't matter to me. Uh, because, look, if I don't know the answer to the question, I'll just tell you I don't know. I don't, I don't torture myself with the expectation that I should know everything. It's a very freeing thing to realize that you don't know everything and that it's good to just admit when you don't know. Uh, this has been a real um, uh, fact, I guess I should say, something really apparent to me here in my visit to New York City. Look, folks. Uh, first of all, I'm not necessarily a big city guy, even though we really enjoy love. We really enjoy visiting big cities of the world. We've enjoyed our visits to London and Paris and Frankfurt and uh, Berlin and Prague and whatever other great cities, Gothenburg and Amsterdam, whatever great cities we've had the opportunity to visit. We enjoy them every time. Uh, but look, I'm just kind of a simple guy who's grown up in a simple way. And sometimes I feel like a real country boy here. I feel like I should be walking around with a corn cob pipe or something like that, that, you know, wow, here I am just a, a guy from the, and, and you just realize visiting here, there's a lot about what happens in the city and how things work around here that I just don't know anything about. So that's great. Look, many times when I've been here in the city, I've, I've began a conversation with somebody by saying, I don't know anything. Can you let me know how this works? And they're always very kind and very helpful to do that. Now, leaving that aside, Ask whatever you want. Devin will pass the questions on to me, and we prioritize them uh, according to what we think might have the broadest appeal to our audience, and we hope to answer these questions. Okay, first question comes from Vanessa, and it asks this question. Uh, Vanessa from Facebook. Thank you, Vanessa, for joining us on a Facebook audience. She asked this question. Are all Christians supposed to preach the gospel in the streets? I'm very shy, and I feel anxious. And when I try to share the gospel normally, I don't know where to start or how to explain it because it's too complex. Sometimes I think I'm a hypocrite because there's people preaching in the gospel in the streets to strangers. And I live my Christian faith inside a building. Could that be preaching? Uh, could it be that preaching is like a gift that I don't have? Oh, Vanessa, God bless you. What a great question. Vanessa, I'm going to bring you my perspective on this. And again, I understand that there's Christians from different backgrounds and different traditions that have different thoughts on this. I'll freely admit that. But Vanessa, you're asking me the question, so I'm going to give you my perspective. Vanessa, it sounds to me like you're feeling guilty that you don't have what the Bible calls the gift of evangelism. There is a very discernible spiritual gift of evangelism. Matter of fact, it's one of the gifted offices that God gives the church, as described in Ephesians chapter 4 and another passage of Scripture. Vanessa, not everybody has every gift. And if you don't have the gift of evangelism, that's okay. Now, I say that the gift of evangelism is most appropriate for what I would call, I'm going to use a phrase here that I'll explain, cold call evangelism. What is cold call evangelism? Well, cold call evangelism, it comes from the world of sales, where a cold call for a salesperson is where they pick up the phone and call somebody who has expressed no interest in the product, no connection whatsoever. They call them, so to speak, out of the blue, and they say, are you interested in buying our product? Now, that kind of sales is tough. 
because you're not dealing with leads, so to speak. You're not dealing with people who've expressed any kind of interest in the service or product that you're offering. And that's kind of like street evangelism, a cold call evangelism. You just you have no idea if anybody has any interest in spiritual things or in Jesus Christ. You're just telling them to repent and believe. I believe that that, for the most part, is the purview of people who have the gift of evangelism. However, I do believe this, Vanessa. I believe that every Christian is called to evangelism in more of a sense of the relationships with the people that we have around us. Vanessa, I want to challenge you. Stop feeling guilty about not being a street preacher and start asking God just to give you evangelistic opportunities in your daily life. Vanessa, you could make this, matter of fact, this goes for every one of our viewers here. You could make this a daily part of your prayer. Every morning when you're getting things ready for the day, you can say, Lord, bring somebody across my path today who needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, who needs to hear something of the love and the affection of Jesus. And if that person comes before me, give me the grace, give me the ability to speak a word to them in Jesus' name. Then keep your eyes open for what opportunities God may arrange. See, now you're not just preaching in the streets. You're not just knocking on doors, having no idea if people have an interest at all. But now, when an opportunity comes your way in your daily life, you know that you know that you know that the Lord is behind it. And you can take it and say, okay, Lord, now help me to do this. So, Vanessa, really, that's what I would encourage you with. Stop feeling guilty that you're not a street preacher and that's not your spiritual gift. But ask God to give you evangelistic opportunities in the daily flow of your life. Those people that you may meet uh, just in the course of your workday, if you're a student uh, in your community, if you're in a neighborhood, whatever it is, ask God to give you those kind of opportunities. And when he does, ask him for the strength and the ability to uh, serve God by faithfully ministering for his word. Okay, Vanessa, one other thing I would say is I do think that it's very good for every Christian to be able to explain the good news. That's simply what the word gospel means. It means good news. The good news of what God has done to save us in Jesus Christ. And basically, I mean, it's something that you need to be able to formulate in a way of explaining on your own, but it should have these basic steps. First of all, just understanding our need of a Savior, what God has provided for us in the person and work of Jesus. In other words, a little bit about who Jesus is. He's the Son of God, and He's God the Son and what Jesus did to rescue us, especially what Jesus did in the, at the cross and in his resurrection. At the cross, Jesus was our substitute. In his resurrection, Jesus, Jesus triumphed over sin and death. So, Vanessa, I think it's a very good thing for you to be able to come to just an easy, natural way for yourself to explain the good news. And there's nothing wrong with working on it, writing it out, repeating it, just being able to talk about it in a natural, memorable way so that you can just freely say, hey, I know what the good news is. Here's the message. 
Hope that's helpful for you, Vanessa. Thank you for that great question. Next question comes from a YouTube viewer from Adonis. Adonis asks, Ezekiel 18 and 33 mentions that the sons won't die for the sins of the fathers. Each will die for their own sins. Why then were Bathsheba's first son and Jeroboam's son, the righteous one, killed? Well, I think most pointedly here, Adonis, when God says that judgment won't come upon uh, the sons for the sake of the father, what God mainly has in mind there is eternal judgment. Because Adonis, look, let's just be honest. Sometimes children die because of the sins of a parent. I mean, sometimes directly so. We read about these tragedies from time to time, don't we? Um, a parent that uh, drives drunk with the children in the car, and because of that, children are killed because of it. That is a situation of children dying directly because of a parent's sin. We know that that is sometimes true, tragically so, on a human level in the here and now. I think God's word in Ezekiel has the most pointed and direct application towards eternal judgment, not whatever crisis or tragedy may happen on this earth. It is true that the first son of David and Bathsheba died under the judgment of the Lord. But that baby did not end up in hell. David specifically says that he, as someone who was heaven-bound, anticipated that he would see that baby in the age, in the life to come. So we know that that child, even though it in some sense was under the judgment of God, it was under the judgment of God in this time, in this place, temporally, not eternally. So I think that's the distinction I would make for you, because as I said before, we know directly of at least some situations where somebody has died, somebody's perished directly because of the sin of a parent. It makes me take those passages in Ezekiel and find their most pointed application to the eternal realm, not to the realm of this time, the temporal realm. Okay, the next question comes from Jordan, uh, from our YouTube audience. Jordan asks two questions. Number one, do you believe Jesus has an issue with entertainment? All right, let me answer that question first, Jordan. Great question. And let me just add, answer this. Jesus does not have an issue with entertainment. Jesus has an issue with idolatry. And if I could say nothing, Jesus has an issue with impurity. Um, so sometimes entertainment can be impure, and Jesus has an issue with that. But other times, even entertainment that is not impure can also be idolatrous. We give too much time, too much attention, too much focus, too much uh, resources, too many resources, too much money towards entertaining ourselves. That is often an expression of idolatry. And Jordan, let's just remember, anything can become an idol. 
I'm recording this for you here on location. I'm in New York City. I'm doing this because I'm in New York City. I'm not doing it from my home studio on the West Coast of the United States. I'm doing it from my iPhone. Look, there are people for whom their phone is their idol. And they sort of cherish it and carry it around everywhere that they go. Now, I'm also having a uh, laptop computer right in front of me. I like my laptop computer. And there are people for whom their laptop computer is their idol. Now, I believe my phone and my computer are good things that God uses, but they can become idols. So entertainment can be idolatrous. And when it is an idol, Jesus is against it. He has an issue for it. So that's how I would express it, Jordan. I would say that Jesus does not have a problem with entertainment per se. Now, I think entertainment, good entertainment, is a gift from God. Now, look, if somebody does it without immorality and without idolatry, it's a good thing to laugh at a good joke. It's a good thing to be entertained by a pleasant story, whether that story is uh, verbally expressed, whether it's written down, whether the story comes to you on a video or a film. Th these are gifts from God. Um, so I, I think that there is a sense in which an entertainer can legitimately be doing God's work by bringing joy and pleasure to humanity. As long as it's not immoral or idolatrous, and maybe we could think of some other things, but I mean, those are the two things that come immediately to mind, then I don't think Jesus has an issue with entertainment. In fact, in some sense, it's a gift from God. All right, that's the first question Jordan had. Your second question, how do you view discipleship in the context of a church in a practical way? Look, Jordan, I think that churches should be teaching people to do the things we should do as disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, good churches, healthy churches, such as the church that I belong to uh, in Santa Barbara, California, Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, because by the way, I, I am not a pastor over a congregation anymore. I have not been for the last five years. Uh, I used to be the lead pastor or senior pastor, whatever term you want to use, of the congregation Calvary Chapel of Santa Barbara, but I turned that over to a, another man five years ago. We're still part of that congregation. I still teach there from time to time, and we just love being a part of that congregation. Um, I think that's a healthy church that is producing disciples, and how it produces disciples is by simply training people through teaching the Word of God, through small group studies, through men's and women's studies, through uh, just one-on-one -on -one discipleship, through example given again and again, teaching people how to do the basics of the Christian life, how to read your Bible, how to pray, how to tell others about Jesus, how to endure through suffering, how to uh, honor God with spiritual disciplines such as fasting and other things. These are things that in one way or another are addressed through the years through just normal discipleship in a church family. So I think that's what we do in discipleship. We just show people what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. Well, you say to read your Bible, how do you read your Bible? You say to pray, how do you pray? You say to tell other people about Jesus, how do you do that? You say to grow in grace, to grow in holiness, how do you do that practically? And fortunately, churches that have a focus on the Word of God and teaching the Word of God have a real advantage, so to speak, when it comes to this. 
So, Jordan, that's the most direct and practical way that I could express it. Okay, next question also comes from a YouTube viewer, Jennifer. Jennifer says this. The Bible says no one has ever seen God. Explain Genesis chapter 32, verse 30, about Jacob's experience. Uh, So here's the verse, Genesis chapter 32, verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Okay, Jennifer, simply this. No one has seen God in his heavenly glory at any time, directly, immediately. When people have had visions of God, or maybe even they've been carried up to heaven, uh, there is an example or two biblically of that, Isaiah, John, maybe Paul. Um, What they saw was some representation of God on the stone, but they did not see God in his unveiled glory face to face. That is what it means when no one has seen God. But people have seen God represented in some form on earth. First of all, Jennifer, I just want you to consider, is it not true that anytime somebody saw Jesus, they saw God? Let's not forget that Jesus is God. So to say that no one has seen God at any time, it's true in regards to God in his unveiled heavenly glory. It's not true in regards to God uh, concerning, uh, what did I say, Um, some representation that he would have of himself on earth in the person and form of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was and is God. When anybody looked at Jesus, they saw God. So that is analogous to the experience that Jacob had. Matter of fact, we can make the argument that what Jacob actually experienced there in Genesis chapter 32 is what we would call a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. This was Jesus appearing before he was conceived in Mary's womb and born as a babe in Bethlehem. We know that Jesus existed before he was conceived, but there came a point in time when he added humanity to his deity. But apparently there's more than a few situations in the Old Testament where Jesus appears as God in some kind of bodily form in the Old Testament. That is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. But God, the Father, in his unveiled glory in heaven, no man has ever seen that. So, Jennifer, I I hope you can catch the distinction there. Um, And I thank you there for that question. Next question comes from a Facebook viewer, Christina. Christina asks this question. What should our attitude be towards wolves in sheep's clothing? I have a friend. He says that he never reads the Bible. He barely has time to pray even a little bit. And he seems to be a manipulator and rude sometimes. And he never apologizes. When I confront him about his issues, he gets angry and says that he can be filled with Holy Spirit despite not reading the word or praying. I don't know whether to be merciful or to stop praying for him and avoid him. Christina, let me just be very upfront with you on this. I cannot categorically say whether or not you should have any further contact with this person unless I were to know a lot more about the situation. But your question was, most pointedly, how can we know or how can we have an attitude somebody who's a wolf in sheep's clothing? Because I want to make a distinction here. There are people who are false believers, pretend believers, 
But the only damage they're doing pretty much is to themselves. Now, you, you could say that nobody ever only damages themselves. And I understand that. But I would say predominantly the only damage that they do is to themselves. So there are some people who are like that. But there are other people who they do a great deal of damage to others. And what I would be interested, by the way, from how you describe this gentleman that you speak of, you have every reason to believe that either he's not a believer at all, not in any true sense, and if he is a believer, that he is very much a believer who's out of fellowship with God and needs to repent and get things right with God. Just from how you describe the situation, that's what I would say. But he may not be having a negative impact on other believers. That's what wolves do. You see, I would just make a distinction between goats, which aren't true sheep at all, and sick sheep, which are sheep of the Lord, but they're very sick, they're not well. There's goats, there's sick sheep, and then there's wolves. The difference is that the wolves are attacking the flock of God. They're seeking to devour and destroy them. And if this is the case with this friend that you mentioned, then you have every reason to distance yourself from them, not be involved with them, to not continue on in some sort of service or ministry toward them, unless you would believe yourself to be very much providentially and inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so. So, Christina, I hope I'm making the distinctions here. You have on the one side some people who are not believers at all. They're goats. Then you have other people, they are believers, but they're really sick. They're, they're sick sheep. But then you have a third category. Those are the wolves. Not only are they not true sheep, they are a danger to the other sheep. And just how you describe this gentleman, I can't really tell if he's a danger to somebody else. So um, all I can say is that prayerfully approach this. Let God in his providence by the guiding and leading of your Holy Spirit direct you on this. And uh, I would pray that God would give you wisdom on this. Thank you for that question there, Christina. Another question comes from Mariel. Mariel of our YouTube audience asks this question. Is it okay to ask God to give me a husband? Some people say I shouldn't because it's just my decision. But I think he's able to do anything. Having children and a husband is one of my biggest dreams. Mario, look, you know, if we were to sit down and have a much longer conversation, maybe I'd get a little more understanding of this. But just on the basis of what you write to me, Mario, I would say by all means, you should pray that God would lead you to a godly husband. Why not? Let's not forget what the scriptures say. You have not because you ask not. And I don't believe that's the only reason for unanswered prayer, but it's certainly a significant reason for unanswered prayer. We don't have because we do not ask. And so there's nothing wrong. There's everything right. If you sense a desire, if you sense a need, maybe even, I don't want to sound too spiritual about it, but a sense of calling to be married and to have children, then it's perfectly okay for you to pray that prayer. Lord, Bring me a godly husband. Bring me to a godly husband. Bring a godly husband to me. Lord, I'm going to let you decide how exactly it happens. But Lord, would you bring me together with a godly man who can be a husband for me and perhaps a father to children that I would have? 
nothing wrong with that prayer. Look, th this is um, uh, the course of life that God calls most people into. Not, not all by any means. Let, let's make no mistake. Christianity has a important place within it for those who are single. In Christianity, those who are unmarried, the single can and do glorify God. In Christianity, Jesus was single and Paul was single. So, I mean, these are important things to remember. Yet, at the same time, we also acknowledge that it is the calling and plan of God for most people, not all by any means, but for most people, to most of his followers, most Christians, to marry and to have children. If this were not the case, it would be the end of the age. I mean, this, this is what God, be fruitful and multiply means a lot of things, but that's part of what it means. So while we do recognize the important place that Christianity gives to calling and true life fulfillment for the single, this is true. Um, it's okay to recognize, Lord, it seems to be your will for most of your followers to be married. Uh, I think that might be me as well. So bring me a godly husband or wife, of course, if you're a man. So again, uh, Christina, I hope that's helpful for you. And uh, excuse me, Mariel, I hope that's helpful for you. And God bless you. Uh, from Facebook, Chuck asks this question. As a Christian that has promised God to quit drinking coffee, I'm still struggling and failing. What should I do? I've prayed and asked God in prayer, and I'm having a very difficult time. Oh, Chuck. Let me say a few things about this. First of all, I want you to reevaluate your vow. You have, in some ways, made a vow before the Lord. And that vow... Um, is something that you're having a struggle with. Look, sometimes when we're having a struggle with a vow or a promise before God, sometimes the problem is that we made a vow that we shouldn't make. Now, listen to me carefully on this, child. When we make a vow or a promise before God that we should not have made, don't ignore it. Don't just forget about it. Instead, repent of making the vow, talk about it with God, and repent before him, and uh, ask God to give you the wisdom to not do such things in the future. I think it is a misguided and sometimes a hindrance in Christians' lives when we have broken vows that we do nothing about. We don't repent of them. We don't rededicate ourselves to them. We just ignore them. Believer, I want to challenge you now. If there are broken vows in your life, get them resolved before God. Either rededicate yourself to the vow, or if you realize now with maybe greater wisdom and insight, I should have never made that vow, that's okay too. But instead, go back and say, God, I made a foolish vow. I repent of it. Uh, consider me to be released from this because I repent of making that vow. So that's the first thing I'd like you to do, Chuck. Now, if you do that and, and just sort of pray about it and seek God about it, Lord, was this a, a wise vow or an unwise vow? If you feel confirmed, no, this is a vow that God, in fact, did want me to make, then you should just do what 
often helps us whenever we're trying to establish a spiritual discipline or, or, or do very practical things in our walk that would demonstrate some level of self-denial. Chuck, I would just say this, make yourself accountable to another person. Find another person who's going to ask you twice a day, hey, Chuck, how are you doing with the coffee thing? Okay, so again, remember this. First, first, evaluate your vow and, and find out, is this something to rededicate yourself to this vow? Or is this a vow to repent of and sort of call off before the Lord? Okay, that's one aspect. And the second aspect is, if you determine that, no, this is something that I want to continue on. This was glorifying to God then I really believe that the right thing for you to do is simply to um, make yourself accountable to somebody else. And this will be a sincere help to you in your keeping of the vow. Hope that's helpful for you there, Chuck. Um, Polly asks a question on YouTube. Can you go over the significance of Timothy's ministry? Did he have a mom who was Jewish that became Christian and a dad who was Greek? Wouldn't his dad have different views? Well, Polly, again, great question here. Um, Timothy is a remarkable man in the scriptures. We often present him as being a young man, and he might have been young, relatively speaking. Uh, but by the time Paul put him in ministry there in Ephesus, he could very well have been in his late 20s and 30s. Uh, which, by the way, is relatively young, but uh, we shouldn't think that he was like a, a teenage preacher or something like that, even though it's possible that when he started his work with the Apostle Paul, he could very well have been in his teens. And we know that from the way that Paul speaks to Timothy in the letters that he wrote to him, in fact, Timothy did have a mother who was a believer, but from a Jewish background. And we're not told anything about the faith of Timothy's father. So we just don't know. Now, we assume that Timothy had a Greek father because there's nothing mentioned about the Jewish faith or religion of his father. And there's also no mention of a spiritual influence from the father. Uh, Paul, in his letters to Timothy, makes mention of the godly influence that Timothy's mother and grandmother had upon him. Now, I don't have any doubt that they had a godly influence upon him in regard to Judaism, which would have been obviously godly and preparing the ground for Timothy to come to faith in the Messiah. But it's also very possible, maybe even likely, that Timothy's mother and grandmother came to faith in Jesus before him and schooled him in the faith that's in Jesus Christ. So I think there was two aspects to that. And again, the assumption is made that Timothy's father was a Greek because his name was Greek, uh, because he seems to be this guy, because he was not circumcised when he originally started traveling with Paul, and circumcision would have been a mark of, uh, of a Jewish upbringing. So uh, that seems to be more influenced by a Greek parent, probably the father, because we know that the mother was Jewish. And, and so... Um, Timothy's dad, uh, Timothy no doubt was of adult age when he started following Paul and following Jesus through the work of Paul and being part of Paul's uh, missionary team. So I, I don't doubt that he was probably beyond the age of being under his father's control or command. 
here's another possibility too. It may be, we can't say for certain too, there's just a lot of unanswered questions about this. We, sometimes our curiosity goes beyond the scriptures itself. But it may be that Timothy's father was deceased. And uh, that's why no mention is made of him. So there's a lot of things that are possible here. But Timothy had an interesting and I'd even say exciting role in the New Testament, there being a part of the Apostle Paul's missionary team and then serving the Lord in the city of Ephesus, which was an important and influential church. You could say collection of churches there in the Roman province of Asia Minor, what is today modern day Turkey. Um, so anyway, uh, Polly, I hope that's helpful for you. Uh, next question comes from SNL. SNL asks this question. Is it necessary to have your child formally dedicated to God at church? Okay, SNL, I'm going to answer the question just exactly as you presented. Is it necessary? No. Now, it is necessary, I would say, for Christian parents to in heart and in daily life Treat their children as if they are dedicated to God and to truly dedicate their children to God. But that's what's important. Raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Praying for your children. Praying with your children. Um, uh, reading the scriptures with your children. Raising them in the scriptures. Uh, raising them in the community of God's people. All of these things are very important things for Christian parents to do for and with their children. But the Bible nowhere commands a dedication ceremony of a child. I think it's a good thing to do. I think it's a delightful thing to do. I think it's entirely consistent with the scriptures. Uh, but the scriptures nowhere command it. I would say this too. And again, I, um, I, I understand that our viewers may come from many different church backgrounds, uh, including backgrounds that believe in the baptism of infants or the christening of infants, as it would be called in the Anglican communion. This, I think, is unbiblical. Again, I, I would love to talk more about it sometime. This is a subject that fascinates me. Uh, and again, um, I understand that in some sense, this is just a different doctrinal perspective. And what's the big deal? Christians have different doctrinal perspectives all the time. I understand that. But let me just say this. I believe that there is a particular danger in the teaching and in the practice of infant baptism. And here is the particular danger. I would just simply state it like this. I believe that there are millions of souls in hell who believed that they were saved simply because they were baptized as children. Now, I know that there are people who practice infant baptism and say, no, don't associate with us. We're not trying to be guilty of that. We're not saying that people are saved just because they're baptized. This. But I just want to say that it's hard to get away from that feeling that it gets communicated to people that you were baptized as a baby, you're going to heaven. Now, let me say this. If you are a pastor or an elder in a church that does practice infant baptism, here's my encouragement towards you for whatever it's worth. You may think it's worth nothing, but nevertheless, I'm going to give you this encouragement. Regularly preach to your people that you're not saved just because you were baptized as a child. Because you were baptized as a baby, that does not ensure your salvation. You must individually come to Jesus Christ with faith and repentance, responding to his call of God on your life. Okay, so 
if a pastor does that regularly, I don't mean once a year or once every other, but if a pastor will regularly tell his people, warn his people that you're not going to heaven just because you were baptized as a baby, then I would say that the practical potential harm of infant baptism is dealt with. And then it's just a matter that we disagree about. So again, there is no command for a infant or baby dedication or child dedication, but I think it's a wonderful and lovely practice that is certainly allowed and permitted in the Bible. Next question comes from Abishek. Uh, yeah, Abishek. I hope I'm pronouncing that well. From our YouTube audience. Ask this question. Can we see God or his influence in our dreams? If so, how can we recognize God's presence or influence in our dreams? Abishek, uh, I believe that it is possible for God to speak to somebody in dreams. Uh, I know that people disagree with this. There are some people who say, no, God does not speak to anybody today except through his written word. That's the only way God speaks to people today. And listen, friends, I, I, don't, I feel like I don't have to um, lay out my credentials as someone who believes in God's word. I have a verse-by-verse -verse commentary on the entire Bible that is my life's work that is literally used by, well, it's used by a lot of people. Let's just say that. A lot of people find it a valuable Bible resource. And... I don't have to prove my Bible credentials. I believe in God's word. And I believe in the importance of God's word. I believe in the sufficiency of God's word. But to say that the only way that God can communicate with a human being today is through his written word, I think just falls short. I think that the Holy Spirit can bring a spirit of conviction upon a person consistent with the word of God, fulfilling with the word of God, but it doesn't necessarily come from the pages of scripture. And if the Holy Spirit can do that, then the Holy Spirit can speak to people in other ways. Now, I know that people think that this is a dangerous thing to talk about because, oh, people start thinking every crazy thing that comes in their head is the word of God. And I agree, that is a danger. We need to speak out against that. But I just want to highlight what a strange thing it is to say that the only way that God can communicate with a human being today is through the words in his written word. That if there is a sense of conviction of sin that comes into a person's life, apart from the direct reading of God's word, that that must be from the devil. It can't be from God. It can't be from the Holy Spirit. I think what a strange way to talk about God and his work in the world. So, Abishek, I understand that there's some room uh, for danger in this, in speaking about this. It's possible for this idea to be abused, but I can't get away from the thought that, um, yes, it's true that the Holy Spirit can speak to somebody. And how do you know? Well, first of all, always, 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 we judge things by the word of God. We judge things by his written, revealed word. This is the standard. This is the measure for everything. Then I believe that there's a secondary standard that we do. Once it's past that grid, then 
we just simply ask, uh, it, is it consistent with the wise counsel or advice of other godly people that, that God would put in my life? Um, I would not be quick to make any kind of real uh, important decision or radical decision purely on the basis of maybe a dream or something like that as a confirmation for how God was leading providentially or in some other way, but not purely on the basis of that. I hope that's helpful for you there, Abishak. And our final question for the day comes from Trisha from our YouTube audience. Thank you for joining us, Trisha. I want to thank everybody from our Facebook audience, our YouTube audience, our TWR360 audience. So pleased that you could join us today. I'm speaking to you today from New York City. Look at a pretty beautiful skyline right now of the city. And uh, here I am uh, here for a few days next week. God willing, and if I live, I'll be speaking to you back from my home in the West Coast of California. But for right now, we're going to deal with our last question that comes to us from Trisha, from our YouTube audience, who asks this question. Can you discuss the meaning behind receiving the same messages from multiple avenues of shared faith? For example, um, unrelated devotional study groups, YouTube, etc.? Trisha, I got to be honest, it's a little bit hard for me to get exactly the sense of your question, but I would just say this. When the same idea keeps coming before me from several different sources, it gets my attention. And it makes me say, hey, maybe the Holy Spirit's shining a spotlight on something for me. I don't know. Let's just give an issue, the issue of uh, being persistent in prayer and uh, from this source and that source and another source and a third source and a fourth source that just kind of come before me in my daily life or whatever it is, drawing my attention to the issue of persistence in prayer, then I think it's fair enough to say, hey, Lord, are you, are you trying to get my attention on this? Let me let me consider this for you. Let me prayerfully consider and see if God is not trying to get some attention in my life regarding um, persistence in prayer. So that's simply how I would answer that, Trish. I, I believe that sometimes God does do that. God tries to get our attention by bringing a lot of things in front of us. So that may be the case with you or someone you know from time to time. Folks, we've gone a little bit over our hour of our time together. So pleased that you could join us, and I hope to see you again. I pray that God would work in your life, and I do ask, uh, unashamedly, I simply ask, that you would pray for the work of Enduring Word, especially the work that we have in translating my Bible commentary, my Bible resources into other languages, uh, because this is, I believe, a significant work of providing quality Bible resources for many different languages. I believe God's blessing is on this work. But if his blessing is on this work, it's because God's people are praying. And God is a good God who delights in answering their prayers. So I appreciate your prayers. Pray that God would give us the resources that we need because it's a big undertaking. Pray that God would lead us to the right people to do the translation work. Pray that God would bless the work of our many translators and editors and proofreaders. And pray that that translated Bible commentary would get out to a whole bunch of people in the different languages that we offer it. Spanish, Chinese, Arabic, German, Italian, Portuguese, French, uh, Farsi, all the different language platforms that we're active with. 
So I hope that you'll do that. And I hope that you'll join us again next week. Thank you so much to Devin, our moderator, and to Andrea Kolsch, our operations director, whatever title we're given to her in her important work. And I hope you can join us again next week. God bless you. Thank you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.